Welcome to Lights at the End of the Tunnel, a place where we shine a light on, rant, complain, and try to find solutions about the MGA. After all, we are all in these tin cans together. Welcome back to Lights at the End of the Tunnel. Glad to have you back. It's been a long time, and I hope that you are all doing well. Episode 40, recorded July 31st, 2021. On this episode, I speak with Jose Martinez. Some of you may know Jose Martinez. He is currently the transit reporter for the city. The city is an independent, nonprofit news outlet dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Prior to the city, Jose was transit reporter for New York One. Prior to New York One, he was courts reporter for the New York Daily News and the New York Post. He's also making his fourth appearance on the podcast. I figured what better way to restart things than with a friend of the podcast who understands transit. On this episode, we discuss the many issues the pandemic has wrought on the transit system of New York. On this episode, we discuss canceled service, service cuts, money issues, accessibility, leadership, and more. After my conversation with Jose, I will speak on what we learned from Jose and my thoughts on what we had learned from him. Following my summary, I will have contact information for Jose and myself. Please enjoy. Today, I'm speaking with Jose Martinez. Some of you may know Jose Martinez. He is currently the transit reporter for the city. The city is an independent nonprofit news outlet dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Prior to the city, Jose was transit reporter for New York One. Prior to New York One, he was court reporter for the New York Daily News and the New York Post. He's also making his fourth appearance on the podcast. Welcome back. How are you doing since the last time we spoke? Hi, Sarah. Nice to uh, hear your voice again. I'm doing well. How have you been? I've been pretty good. Hanging in there, doing my best, like a lot of us in the city. Interesting year and a half. A really interesting, strange um wild year and a half uh, in terms of the work that I've been able to do at the city. I, I think it's been some of the best I've done in my career. Um, that's not to say that it's been a great year. Obviously, it's been a difficult year for the, the city, the country, the region, uh, and and for what I cover, the transit system. This is true. The last time we spoke was in the beginning of the pandemic over a year ago. We're still currently in a pandemic. Transit was hit especially hard in New York. It is, is it safe to assume that any progress made during the brief Byford era has been erased by the pandemic and by leadership at the MTA at this time? Because cracks are really starting to show, and we're going to talk about that. No, I think what you're seeing now is the system coming back to life, if you will, <clears throat> after a period in which ridership at its lowest point went down by more than 90%. So that was an incredible drop-off. The ridership fell off. A lot of the workers were sick. Uh, of course, more than 160 workers died. So it's been a really dark and very tough time for the MTA. As far as the gains that were made back then, prior to the pandemic, you'll recall that on-time performance was hitting marks that it hadn't seen in some time. Uh, wait times were down on platforms. Those numbers have remained pretty steady, actually. But what that can be attributed to in large part is that the ridership has been down. 
now what you've been seeing in more recent months, and I've been reporting on this since last winter at the city.nyc, is the shortage of workers. Right. So there was a hiring freeze. There were a lot of retirements. Of course, there were um, a lot of deaths of transit workers. This all adds up to an impact on service delivery. And uh, when you have shortage of train crews, when you have uh, an absence of conductors or train operators, what that leads to is a shift in service, uh, a lot of cancellations. Uh, as I reported recently in the city, uh, it was a month that there were more cancellations in that month than there had been since the very start of the pandemic. 10,600. So, that's right, 10,600. The hardest hit lines were the A and the number one. Uh, those, are, those are lines I ride uh, regularly. And so with more people coming back to work, uh, and with ridership increasing every day, and of course, the hope that more people will be back in the office after Labor Day. This is, as someone said to me the other day, a crisis that does need to be addressed by the MTA, that does need to be addressed uh, by Governor Cuomo. Well, the buses are also experiencing crew shortages, as you wrote a couple of months ago. That's right. Same thing on the buses. So what you've seen is a lot of canceled trips, and I, and I noticed this initially because the MTA itself, the NYCT bus Twitter feed, every day I was seeing on there uh, that so many train or trains, buses, buses, excuse me, so many buses were being canceled, so many trips were being canceled, and often they they threw in the condition that you know we're running uh, as much service as we can with the crews that we have available, and it got to the point where I saw that so many times that I inquired about it, and sure enough, uh, there were some issues with. Uh, service, with frequency, with uh, running buses, and with keeping people waiting. And again, when you look at coming out of the summer, uh, when you look at the city, the region emerging from the pandemic, that's something that has got to be a, a top of mind concern uh, for the workers and the, and the big brains down at the MTA headquarters at 2 Broadway. Well, you know, the fact is, school is going to come back after... Labor Day. A lot of businesses want all their employees back at the end of labor by by Labor Day. So we're looking at. I mean, there's we're grateful for the increases, but as someone who regularly rides the train during rush hour, yeah, it is getting a little crowded. And when canceled trips are happening, the the trains are very crowded, and that makes some people very nervous. Some people get very nervous when anyone brushes up against them, and you see it written all over their face. So we're well. If they're wearing a mask, it's all in the eyes. But um, if they're not, then you know they're not particularly worried about it. But mask compliance sometimes is great and sometimes it's not. But the fact of the matter is, it's going to get. I I I hate to say it, but it might get worse before it gets any better. And it really does need to be addressed. And as we heard last week at the board meeting, they're now saying things like right sizing, which means basically. Uh, if you put it through the Google Translator, that will come out as service cut. Exactly. So it's, a, it's such a weaselly word. They should just call it what it is, which is service cut. No one likes it, but they, I would prefer them just to be brutally honest with me than just say, right-sizing. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what that means. I'll give the MTA credit. They've been fairly transparent when it comes to saying this is why uh, you're delayed, this is why your train is not running, this is why... You this trip has been canceled on your express bus because they're saying they have the issues with, with worker shortages. Now, what the MTA is uh, referring to and what you just mentioned, the right sizing, 
that results from uh, what comes out of meeting demand. So if there isn't demand, they will, as they call it, right-size the service. Again, put that to the translator and it comes out as a cut uh, in service frequency. But it's, it's a very real possibility because ridership has not come back to pre-pandemic levels, not even close on the commuter rails, uh, where it's about 30%, I believe, uh, of what it was. On the subway, it's hovering about half of what it was uh, before the pandemic. So you're talking about days when you have in excess of 2 million people, 2.5 million people uh, coming back to the transit system. The buses uh, haven't taken as huge a hit. Uh, they initially did better in retaining some of their ridership than the subway did. But again, on all of those modes, ridership is down and that's money. And the MTA is looking at some revenue shortfalls uh, as soon as 2023, I believe it is, or 2024. Uh, and that could be when, when the service uh, reductions kick in uh, or right sizing, uh, as, as they'll call it, at the MTA. And that's, and that's not something that anyone wants to face. We've been down this road before. You'll remember that for months uh, in the pandemic, they were talking about doomsday cuts and some really, really uh, nasty thoughts and, and perspective cuts that were online at the MTA at that time. Well, let's talk about leadership at the MTA right now. There, there are some recent very high-profile departures. Lieber is now in charge of certain aspects. Right. And it's like there's there's like empty space where there shouldn't be space. Samuelson has some, you know, thoughts on that. The most epic wordsmith ever in the world. And, yeah, I mean, what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. That this is the, the, the shuffle atop the MTA. Um, the MTA has a new acting chairperson. And Jenna Lieber. Uh, Mr. Lieber is a veteran of the scene here in New York. He was in construction. He's worked in the federal government. He's worked in transportation. He's worked in real estate. He's well regarded uh, for everything he's done in his past. And uh, he is now the chairperson, the acting chairperson. And that's because the state Senate didn't give it to Governor Cuomo's hopes to install two leaders atop the MTA, where Jenna Lieber would be the chief executive officer, so in charge of the daily operations of the place, in addition to his duties as the agency's construction and development chief. And it would have had Sarah Feinberg as the chairperson of the MTA, of the MTA board. Um, Ms. Feinberg, of course, has been the interim president of New York City Transit since I believe right in late February of 2020, right after uh, right after Andy Byford uh, departed New York City Transit, uh, she was uh, installed as the, the president of New York City Transit. And what she had to endure uh, over that time was intense. Look at what she stepped. I, I, I don't I don't envy her at all. She no, she no. followed a very popular, well liked person not only on the streets of New York but within the organization itself. Side note, have you seen him lately? He looks he looks so happy in London. But anyway, um, I mean, I don't envy her at all. It's a tough gig, and I feel bad for her that what she stepped into and what she had to deal with over the past year and a half. It was a lot to handle. Um, think about all of those deaths. Think about all of the challenges you had. 
to move those who were still using the system during uh, the most challenging days. Uh, think about everything that uh, has been on uh, the plate of, of the people at the MTA. We're talking about worker assaults. We're talking about uh, keeping service moving. Um, three weeks into her term as president, I believe it was March 27th, you had the incident where uh, a, a, a cart on a number two train uh, went up in flames at the 110th Central Park North Station. The train operator was killed. This is stuff that uh, you can go years and not encounter uh, the number of hits uh, that Ms. Feinberg took for being the interim president in, in just short order. So, yeah, it was a lot to handle. Uh, but now she's moving on outside of the role of New York City Transit president. That leaves a gap atop that agency. And uh, that is, as, as John Samuelson, the transport workers, uh, international president, told me, a conundrum because they want to look at hiring uh, a, a top-notch person, uh, a world-class transit professional. And at least according to Samuelson and others I've talked to, that gets a little trickier when you consider the, the track record of that job where they've had, they will be on their sixth president in less than a decade. And, and uh, Samuelson doesn't mince words. He says that uh, Andy Byford was mistreated and run out of town and that that will, as I reported in the city uh, in my most recent story, that that will impact the ability of the MTA to bring in a replacement for Sarah Feinberg, and that remains to be seen, of course. Well, he, I mean, you can't say that he is wrong, that he did get run out of town. I mean, and, you know, I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did, but here's the thing. I felt the changes that he made on the, on the R line because it went from an hour to get to Midtown from Bay Ridge to, like, 40 minutes. Between 40 and 45 minutes. So that Safe Seconds program saved me a nice chunk of time. And it may not sound like a lot, but, you know, that extra, like, 10 to 15 minutes means something. That stretch uh, along the R there, uh, 4th Avenue line in Brooklyn, was one of the early stretches to where the, the signal timers were recalibrated to help pick up a few seconds uh, to get trains moving a little faster. And I reported a few months back that uh, the MTA is going to continue with that program. And, and in the MTA books, uh, most recent set of books, uh, it was in there in black and white that they're hiring for a few positions for that unit that is uh, has the task of uh, accelerating service. And, and that's important because when people come back, uh, you want it to move as quickly as possible. Of course, when people come back, what that means is it's inevitable there will be some slowed service because people hold doors, uh, you run into delays. Uh, services run pretty well when, when there aren't as many people riding the train. So we'll see how that goes. But that is um, uh, one of the initiatives that, that's going to hang around, and, and I think... Uh, the workers and, and certainly the writers would think that that's a positive thing. It is a positive thing, and I appreciated it. Let's talk about something that we always talk about, which is accessibility or the lack of it. You've written 
two recent articles regarding the trials and complications of paratransit riders. The most recent being about how at the MTA board, the board can still remote in while commuters still have to physically be in the room to express their discontent. And you spoke with one of my other um, interview subjects, Iman Ramali, who points out that, you know, you put it out, it takes her two hours to get from Brooklyn to, to Broadway, which is ridiculous, but she's doing, you know, Accessoride, which continues to be a dumpster fire. And your other article was on the ride hail app and how the lack of taxi drivers through deaths or just leaving to pursue other things because of the lack of business that they were getting during the pandemic, how that has impacted our disabled citizens. So let's so let's talk about it. Sure. Well, you know, in terms of the first story, uh, which was during the most recent set of MTA board meetings, uh, that was the, the July meeting was the first meeting in which um, all board members were present. Members of the press were invited to fully come back. It was considered the first full meeting uh, that was not <coughs> virtual. And the public commenters um, were allowed to come back to Broadway and say their piece into the microphone for 18 months. Uh, everyone had conducted business, at least in the public commenting and the reporters part of it, uh, and for many of the MCA board members, it had been conducted virtually. So we all connected via Zoom. Everyone commented via Zoom. They submitted their comments a couple of days prior to the meetings via Zoom. Now what's happened as of July is everyone is back, and that includes public commenters. So for members of the disabilities community, there was unhappiness. And, 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 and you know, Sarah, from going to these meetings and covering these meetings, that's one of the most vocal uh, and active constituencies anywhere in the transit world. They, they, they are very um, strong in number, uh, strong in opinion, and they get hurt. So what happens now with having to be there in person is there were at this most recent meeting, I believe just two people from the disability community that commented and the concern and the complaint was this is going to take a while to get to MTA headquarters. Uh, it's going to require an early rise. Uh, also, is the service going to be reliable? Are, are there enough drivers on the road if you're taking the app? or is my ride going to show up? Uh, so there, there was a lot of that which drove attendance down, and Pat Foy, the outgoing MTA chairperson, did say that it's something that would be considered to give the members of that community, and, and I'm assuming others in the public, uh, the right to comment in, virtually, not, not clear from, from Mr. Foy if that's in real time or not, or pre-recorded. But at the very least, the MTA is considering uh, rolling back its initial return to making people uh, comment in person during MTA meetings. That's good. We'll but, see. But you know, that, that, that they at least floated the idea. Uh, but again, this is a very active and vocal community, and uh, as well they should be when you consider that it's you know just about less than 30% of the stations in the subway are accessible. They have a lot of issues with um, Accessoride. Uh, there, there's always going to be something to focus on uh, when you are a person of limited mobility. That's true. And um, 
given that the MTA has fought for decades to not have elevators, it speaks volumes that they're willing to just accommodate them a little bit. Though I want to give the quote that Andre Berman gave that still just ruffles my feathers a little bit. Our two Broadway headquarters is well equipped with the necessary tools and infrastructure to ensure people from across the ability the ability spectrum are able to express their opinions while facing the board. Well, that's great. I'm great. I'm grateful that, you know, to Broadway can get, you can, you can get inside the building. It's getting to the building. That's the problem. So it's just like, it's addressing the issue without addressing the issue. And there, there is the challenge of getting there. Uh, Mr. Molly said it was it's incredibly two hours from her home in Bed-Stuy to, to get to um, lower Manhattan down the Bowling Green uh, there were others who I spoke to prior to that meeting who said, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be there. Why? Because I'm not sure if my ride's going to show up. I'm not sure if it's worth it. Also, there were health concerns. The, the Accessor Ride program now has shared rides again. Some people I spoke with said they weren't so hot on the idea of riding uh, in, in bunches, if you will, uh, after months of uh, solo rides uh, for Accessor Ride customers. So there are, there are a lot of things in play there, uh, but you know the the accessor ride ridership has, has come back at uh, a, a, a somewhat higher level, but still plenty of hurdles there uh, to bring back uh, people as they were uh, prior to the, the start of this mess. Well, you know, while we're talking about vulnerable, unrepresented people, let's talk about the fare collection booths. It's caused a kind of a ruckus for a little bit when they made the non-cash transactions permanent. And then other issues started coming out of those articles, such as um, one in nine in the city don't have a bank account, so they can't use Omni. So they rely on the booths, especially if the kiosks aren't working. And also the whole rigmarole of like, if your card is bent or broken, you now have to send it in or get a new one. And if you have, like, if you're lucky enough to afford an unlimited one, it's like, well, I can't afford to do that, and I don't have the time to do that. So in terms of the, the booths being phased out, what are your thoughts on that? And how, can we, or the, how long will the booths be in service as just like uh, a customer service tool? That's, that's a position uh, that has been for years now evolving, uh, and, and Transport Workers Union has fought it for some time to, to take their people out of the booth. Some of them have gone into other roles outside of what we used to know as token booths. Uh, they put them at work on uh, station platforms uh, in, in being wayfinders. Uh, they were put into other positions. So this is something that's been going on a long time, and the MTA has been uh, successful in phasing out a lot of booths. So a lot of booths, a lot of stations that you'll go into You'll see where the booth used to be, or you'll see the closed booth. So does that have repercussions? Sure. Uh, it can have repercussions if, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you need to make some sort of money transaction. Uh, if the uh, metro card machine is not working, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, because as you noted, uh, some people may not uh, have access to Omni. Uh, that's something that, by the way, I've been using Omni now for the better part of a year and a half uh, as someone who used the unlimited MetroCard 
for many, many years. And golly's got my money is worth. I, I've only used the unlimited on seven-day weeklies, I, I believe, three times in the last year and a half. So that really speaks to someone who was a very frequent rider of the, of the transit system. I go everywhere on subways and buses. And it, and it speaks to um, you know, the evolution of the fare payment system. That said, does everyone have it? No. And that could be where you have uh, a, a token booth attendant uh, that could come in handy uh, for those that, that, that don't necessarily have it. Otherwise, uh, there's always the opportunity to beat the fare. Well, let's hope that they don't beat the fare. But um, in terms of like tap and go Omni cards, they're expected like next year, right? Yeah, they're next. Uh, they're 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 coming into service eventually. Um, there will be the, the equivalent, if you will, of, of the Metro card, a physical card, not just a bank card, but a, a physical Omni card that you can tap uh, on the turnstile reader. Like an like an Oyster card in London. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, like the Oyster card. Uh, I was in uh, Washington not long ago, and uh, that was a tap and go. Um, the system there at, at, at their funky turnstiles in the DC metro. Uh, so yes, fair payment is evolving. Uh, it's not yet fully clear how it will be structured in terms of the unlimited and the discounts that are available to riders. Uh, all of this is kind of in flux uh, as the MTA tries to get some sense too of worker or working from home uh, and, and the the amount of people that come back to their offices full time. Uh, there have been calls for some time now on the commuter railroads to, instead of having the monthly ticket, to spread it out over X number of days because if you're not going in every day to the office, and a lot of people from the suburbs, the northern and uh, the, the, the eastern suburbs, um, have not gone back, certainly on the commuter railroads, if you're not going in every day, spread it out to get your usage maximized over something beyond the standard monthly. Um, and we'll see how that plays out on the subways and buses. Okay. Uh, but it's, it's coming. It is. And uh, also there's going to be omni availability on the fare gates for uh, the those with uh, disabilities uh, because while omni is already up and running in every subway station in the system, and on a lot of the buses, most of them, I believe, uh, it, it had not, the last time I checked, and that was, I believe, last week, uh, had not yet been activated on the special gates that allow in those uh, with uh, disabilities. True. We need to make things easier for them. So build those elevators. Um, let's talk about bloat, excess, poor management, Poor money management and some hubris. Let's start with Eastside Access. Um, I had a recent conversation with a friend that actually posed the question if ESA is obsolete before it even opens, because those who live in Long Island may not want to pay all this money to come in if they don't have to, like working from home. So they already posed the question, is it already obsolete over 10 years building the thing and billions of dollars later, does it serve a purpose that it originally meant like 10, 12, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a, 
evolving situation over there at Eastside Access. That, for, for those who might not know, that is the, and they might not know because it's been built sort of in the shadows beneath, literally 10, 15 stories beneath Grand Central. Uh, that's, uh, I believe it's about $11 billion, the price tag on Eastside Access. And I, I went down there a few weeks ago when uh, Jenna Lieber and Andrew Cuomo led a tour uh, for the press of uh, Eastside Access. It was my first time down there in a few years. It looks nice. It looks like a train station now. I, I've been down there over the last seven years and seen it go from uh, the Bat Cave <laughs> to now what looks like uh, a junior varsity version of Grand Central. It at least has the colors of Grand Central, and it's, and it's lovely. It's impressive. But is it going to get the use uh, with so many people from the island uh, and from the Long Island Railroad not using that system to the level they had previously? Uh, that was asked of Jenna Lieber and Andrew Cuomo. I, I can't exactly, I can't recall their exact answer, but I think they said something to the point that they, they, they're confident that uh, it will get its full capacity, but that's definitely a concern. Uh, it's a things have changed uh, since the project was first built, and the pandemic really did impact how people use the system. So, if and when it opens uh, by the end of, I believe it's 2022 or start of 2023, uh, is it going to have the numbers that that they? had expected, that is going to, um, that, that's another one of those that, that you can say it remains to be seen, right? Very much a, it's a real question uh, when, when your ridership is not what it was prior to the start of this thing. I mean, do they have any other ideas for it other than LIRR? Uh, of course. No. <laughs> Central is, is deep enough, and, and, it's, and it's plenty nice, though a lot of those businesses, last time I was there, uh, remain closed. No, I, I, I don't I don't believe so. It's, you know, full speed ahead, if, if you can say that for a project that's taken as long as it has to get this built. But um, on getting this thing open, they're trying to get it to the finish line, and they're just about there. Uh, the question, which is going to be there for a while, and I suppose, you know, as, as the city comes back to life a little bit more and uh, but, but, but this thing is still a, way, a little ways off not there yet but it, it has to do with work patterns with working from home patterns with whether there's a return uh, to as many days in the office for the suburban worker from out east as you had prior to March of 2020 these are all big questions that um the big brains in uh, to Broadway, the MTA headquarters, and at the governor's office have got to be uh, thinking about quite a bit. So let's talk about AirTrain at LaGuardia, which essentially is a train to connect to another train that'll get you somewhere, which is 2.3 miles of track at an estimated cost $2.1 billion. <sighs> lots of people got lots of feelings about the AirTrain, and... Um, what are your feelings about the air train? Well, I'll tell you this. First of all, I was at Kennedy earlier this week uh, reporting a story, and I took the uh, A train out to Howard Beach, and then at Howard Beach, I jumped on the air train, and I did my business uh, at JFK. 
So, JFK Air Train costs seven fifty per ride. So, I believe that's the price now. Fifteen dollars round trip, let's say, uh, in addition to the subway fare. Uh, I like it. Uh, I've used it many times over the years, uh, particularly uh, when I when I lived many years back in Brooklyn. Now that I live in Manhattan, I commute where I commute. I commute on the airplane. Uh, when I travel on airplane, I'll, I'll take the bus out to uh, Jackson Heights or the train out to Jackson Heights and then the bus to the airport. And there's your there's your issue, right? That uh, getting to the airport can be tricky. Uh, you'd like to have a better mass transit outlet to the airport. And at LaGuardia, that's not an option. At LaGuardia, what you have is the Q70 bus uh, out of 61st Woodside, out of uh, 74th Jackson Heights, uh, Roosevelt. Uh, you have the M60 uh, connecting from Manhattan uh, in, in the 106th Street across 125th Street through a couple stops in Astoria to all the terminals at LaGuardia. So you want to accelerate the service. You want to move more people uh, via mass transit. Uh, that said, it all sounds very good, but the idea that has uh, now gotten to the goal line uh, and, 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 and over is the LaGuardia air train. So it would be like the JFK air train that I took the other day, a connection. The connection would be at Matt's Willis Point. So seven train connecting to a new uh, terminal to the air train, uh, which would then take you in and out of LaGuardia. Uh, going backwards to go forwards is how it's been called, the backwards air train, concerns over luggage, uh, particularly during rush hour, on an already very crowded number seven line. These are legitimate concerns, but one way to uh, avoid uh, some headaches of trying to extend, say for instance, the N train out to uh, LaGuardia, as there, there was talk of in the mid nineties, uh, is that you can just build the right of way uh, along state parkland, essentially, uh, along the Grand Central Parkway and get you to the airport and you avoid the headaches that come with trying to build essentially an elevated subway extension, uh, which never got off the ground, uh, through some neighborhoods in Queens. So it's happening. Uh, who's to say, you know, when it gets done, uh, when it finally opens up, but it's the governor's goal and it's going to happen. Yeah, same thing with, uh, I forget what he calls it at Penn Station, but he's basically trying to create a Hudson Yards Park view out there with, you know, super towers and all that stuff on top at a price tag of $16 billion. But, talking about the Empire Complex? Yes, the Empire Complex. Right. Exclusior, um, as everything says now. Um, uh, but from what I understand, it doesn't really help anything underground at actual Penn Station. It's just stuff on the surface level that, you know, you can cut a ribbon and go, look at what I did. And this is one of the frequent criticisms um, from people who watch this stuff, uh, that shiny objects and things like the Second Avenue subway, things like new rail terminals at LaGuardia, uh, new, uh, new, new departure halls, new 
nice restaurants, things that will make people do it off. Uh, as far as Penn Station goes, that would involve uh, some eminent domain uh, on some properties along West 31st Street, just south of Penn Station, just south of Madison Square Garden, to build what I believe is called Penn South. So extend some tracks, uh, and you would, would create, as you said, a, a nice new complex of buildings. Uh, but it's also been noted that without the construction of new rail terminal or rail, rail tunnels, rather, in the Hudson River, the, the, replacing the North River tunnels that have been around for more than a century, without that, which is a terrifying prospect, by the way. It's it's just um, not the, the level of impact that you could have otherwise. So, sure, it's it's a plus and. Moynihan Hall, I think uh, people would agree. It's, it's it's lovely to look at. It's pretty. Uh, it's really pretty. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that that trip, train trip to Washington I took, I, I made sure that uh, when we came back, we that we walked out not through Penn Station, but that we walked out through Moynihan Train Hall just because I wanted to show my friend who I was traveling with, you know, how nice the place is. And I made sure that when I got to the uh, Penn Station Moynihan that morning, that I departed out of Moynihan, uh, just because it's a nicer experience. And that's a key word, a nice, the, the, the nicer experience. And that's a lot of what is happening uh, with some of these projects. They look lovely. It's a nicer experience. There's, no one's going to tell you that the, the stations along the Second Avenue line are hideous and that it's like going into Chamber Street on the on the J line, oh. they're they're attractive, and it's attractive to go into Moynihan as compared to going into Penn Station. Different experience, uh, but the the fundamental gains uh, are, are are significantly different from the experience. Yeah, Chambers, you feel like you need a tetanus shot just to walk into the place. It's so po- post-apocalyptic zombie apocalypse down there. Well, it's got elevators now, though. So. Oh well, yay. <laughs> That's a plus. That's a plus. <laughs> Yay. But when we're talking about money, I mean, congestion pricing is making its way back into the consciousness and people are talking about it a lot now. There's the um, infrastructure plan that is kind of slow walking its way through Washington right now. People in other states like Tom Cotton is complaining that, you know, Schumer's talking too much about train tracks and New York City transit. But it's just like he doesn't it's like other places don't understand the necessity of functional transit in this city. If they don't and they won't, because that's not how they move. No. But it is how millions of us move here in New York. Well, look at it this way. If we don't get to work, that lessens the tax base. If that lessens the tax base, then they don't get as much money from us. Yeah, it's it's just it's a it's a fundamentally different mindset. I, 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 you're, you're saying this, and I'm reminded of uh, the former Mississippi Senator Trent Lapp coming to New York soon after September 11, 2001, looking at some of the buildings around the area there in Lower Manhattan and saying, "People live here." Well, yeah, people live there, and it's different from the way that a lot of cities in the country. Uh, the way a lot of people live in cities elsewhere in the country. And it's the same thing for transit. 
Uh, here, people rely on mass transit. So there are all these projects that need to get done, but it's a real hurdle when you have to convince uh, some in other parts of the country that this is how we do things and this is why it matters. I mean, I know there's a lockbox in place for congestion pricing and stuff, but who I know we've talked about who controls stuff, but who's going to make sure if the if the plan gets through Congress and the Senate and everything, who's going to make sure the money is actually going to go to things like buses and trains and the tracks and the signals? It's like that is my concern. It's like we could get all this money, all this windfall, and it goes to something pretty and not functional. Because it's like I don't care about pretty. I just want to go to work in a reasonable amount of time or go to a show or go to some a friend's house in a different borough and not have it take two hours. Do you want, and these are the two magic words in transportation, safety and reliability. Yes. Uh, not necessarily something that is going to sizzle or sparkle, but be safe, reliable, good, frequent service. And you, you use the phrase slow walking uh, earlier, and, and, and I think that the Slow walking is, is a word that would apply perfectly to uh, the effort to get congestion pricing finally in place. Uh, I, I've been doing stories on congestion pricing for uh, going back to the uh, Bloomberg administration. Uh, not to date myself, but it's been a long time. And it took a long time to get that ball across the goal line, to get Mayor de Blasio to come around on congestion pricing, to get the governor to come around on congestion pricing, to make the sale, if you will, on tolling drivers and using the revenue from that for uh, MTA uh, system upgrades. Uh, and and I, I had a story in the city uh, just the other day about how traffic on Port Authority and on MTA bridges and tunnels and on city DOT bridges uh, the traffic volume is right back to where we were, uh, right just about where we were in the months prior to the pandemic, or late 2019 even. These are some of the highest tra traffic volumes since that time. So what that speaks to, as, as Pat Foy told me, is that it points to the need for congestion pricing. Why? Because not even 50% of the people are using the subway. Uh, not even 30% of the people are back to the offices. But look at all those cars on the road, look at all those vehicles on the road, that could be revenue for the transit system. Uh, that's congestion that I don't think anyone appreciates. And, no. You know, I, I got a few emails saying, criticizing me, saying, you know, how dare you uh, advocate for congestion pricing. I am not advocating for anything of the sort. Uh, what I'm doing is giving you some numbers, which the numbers are staring you in the face, and I think that anyone's eyes would pop out when they consider, as we reported, that even with the price of gas up, even with the number of office workers down, that we're right back to where we were prior to the pandemic, and, and if you're not alarmed by that, then I don't know what to tell you. It's true. It's just like people who, don't, people who have a problem with like congestion pricing are people who never use the trains anyway, so... It's just like money has to come from somewhere because things are not great and they need to improve whether you like it or not. Money does not grow on trees. It does not. It does not. It does not. 
Now, we have a mayoral election coming. It's happening very shortly. The next mayor has a lot on their plate. Whoever our next mayor is has to be a more effective advocate for better transit because Build the Buses Slow wasn't. I'm not sure who came up with Build the Buses Slow on Twitter, but they are my hero. But um, how can the next mayor be a more effective advocate for better transit other than getting some better people on the board and actually well, using their bully pulpit in an effective manner and showing actual interest? But that's so important, and that's what was missing for several years of Mayor de Blasio's uh, two terms in office. He was a man who uh, was a driver, uh, unapologetic about being the driver and talking about how much he enjoyed driving uh, and, and, and being taken by car everywhere. He's a guy who didn't ride the train, who for several years really didn't say all that much about mass transit. Now, at a certain point, did, and he um, took on Governor Cuomo, and he battled a lot of times with the MTA. But remember, he didn't come around until just a couple of years ago on congestion pricing. Uh, he was often very quiet on matters of uh, mass transit, and he also used the subway system, and to some extent, the bus system, as a stage. It's not a stage. It's a, it's a transit system that moves a lot of people, and, and here was a, a mayor who didn't much use it for anything other than a stage. So the next mayor, not that I'm giving campaign advice here, I'm not, but Adams, who has also been endorsed by the Transport Workers Union, uh, likes to make the point that he's a regular subway rider, that he takes the mass transit everywhere. So you're just going to have to have um, a mayor, whoever it may be, could be Curtis Lewa. Uh, could, could be Eric Adams, uh, could be anyone still. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's going to have to be used a little bit more effectively and loudly uh, to advocate on behalf of the millions of people in the city who do use the subway and the buses and the other modes of mass transit effectively. This, this mayor's, uh, Mayor de Blasio's lasting um, legacy, if you will, is uh, that there was a ferry system implemented, uh, the NYC ferry system implemented uh, during his terms in office. Uh, lovely system, very nice, 275, you can ride on it, uh, but it's subsidized heavily, uh, and it doesn't move but a fraction of the people that can fit on a single car during rush hour, uh, or a single train, I should say, during the rush hour. So. Uh, you're, you're talking apples and oranges in terms of value to uh, the commuter. But if you want to think about mass impact, then you have to think about mass transit. And that's where, for whoever our next mayor will be, there will be an opportunity to, as you said, not only install your people on the MTA board, but to become um, a more vocal and uh, more active advocate the mass transit system. We've been focusing on a lot of like serious problems and issues, but there's positive news coming out. You know, elevators are being built. Dedicated bus lanes are starting to be talked about in earnest. Um, what other positive things are happening? We talked about the Safe Seconds program that is starting to become more involved in the system. What other positive things can we talk about? Because we need some hope here 
Jose. We need we need something to look at and go, well, that's good. I want to be positive. I do. I really want to be positive because, you know, I, I like to have a laugh. I like to be a positive person. And sometimes, you know, you look at your stories and you're like, oh, geez, I'm just, you know, kicking them in the butt again. Um, couldn't I be, couldn't I have a laugh once in a while? So, yes, I'm, I'm trying to. And, and it, I think it's positive things that people are coming back to the subway to some degree. These are these are good things for um, rider comfort, for people feeling more at ease, for really a way of life coming back to New York. There are, I'm, I'm sure, for a lot of people, some mental hurdles to be cleared. But I, I do, by and large, see that as a positive. Um, mentioned some of the improvements that we've seen on accessibility, and I'll give the MTA some credit on that. Their uh, current capital plan, um, which of course you know they need to get it done and get it funded and all of that, but that does uh, put a real emphasis on improving accessibility uh, for people in the subway system, uh, increasing significantly the number of elevators um, in the subway system. That's a gain. Uh, there's a focus on signal upgrades uh, throughout the system. So now what we have are the 7 and the L are the only lines that have the fully upgraded, uh, more modern signal system. And then you have some stretches along the Queens Boulevard line in Queens. Incredibly, Queens Boulevard is in Queens. Uh, <laughs> that have upgraded signals. So now you're going to have, the hope is at least, in the next capital plan, to uh, upgrade signals along stretches of six subway lines. Um, these are positive things. Uh, you you, you want to look for those. So, and, and then, of course, we as reporters will have to keep an eye on just how they do once the, once the rollout kicks in. Okay. In our remaining time, is there anything else or any other thoughts you'd like to share on the state of our transit system and how it impacts the city of New York? Well, I think that uh, it's just, it's, it's so New York, uh, the mass transit system. It's, it's a really an integral part of the way of life here. And the funny thing is, for me, is that uh, I never really quite grasped that uh, until I started covering transit you know, about eight, nine years ago, whatever it's been. And I took the subway. I, I rode the buses to a lesser degree, but... You know, I realized it's important, but I think once you get into it as a reporter and you realize and you, you study uh, everything that comes with the transit system, the funding levels, uh, the upkeep of it, the complexity and the battles that come with uh, trying to get these projects funded, the expansion of the subway, all of these things uh, add up, and they're so important and vital to, again, the New York way of life. So as we emerge, hopefully sooner than later, from this long-running pandemic, there's got to be an emphasis on that. And I think that um, that's, as, I, as I've said repeatedly now, it's just so central to the way of life. Personally, I think it's the best reporting beat in the city. It's rich, even though the system can be poor. Uh, it's rich with stories. It's rich with characters. It's rich with life. Uh, it, it's its own world, and that's why I like reporting on it. That's why I enjoy it. 
that's why after so many years, I'm not begging to say, go cover the cops or go cover the politicians. I like the trains. Sorry. (laughs) Nothing to apologize for. It's basically the train is life in this city. It is. It is. Well, I thank you for your time, Jose, and I'm glad that you're doing well. And hopefully, you know, the next time we speak, it'll be in person. Absolutely. And it was uh, my pleasure to come on with you again. You can uh, call me anytime, and uh, I'm happy to join you. All right, sir? Okay, great. Thanks. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So what did we learn today from Jose Martinez? We relearned what we've learned in previous episodes with Jose. Money and leadership make or break the transit system in New York City. The pandemic has hit transit so hard. The deaths of so many transit workers, ridership bottomed out, and then there was all the leadership changes at the top. As Jose pointed out, transit is the lifeblood of New York City. It's how most of us get around. It's how we get to work, to play, to theaters, to restaurants, to our friends in other boroughs. It's how tourists get around for their exciting trip to New York City, and they all come back with the train story. You know they do. Without functional transit, the city suffers. If the city suffers, the citizen suffers. If we suffer, so goes the rest of the country. So here we are, coming back to money. The governor needs to stop focusing on bright, shiny objects that look pretty and focus on the non-sexy parts of transit. Track signals, the tracks, train cars, buses. It's not pretty, but it makes it go. We need a mayor who actually will advocate for it. More importantly, the infrastructure bill needs to pass. Tom Cotton from Arkansas was making snarky comments about Chuck Schumer's push for more money for transit, not just here, but in other parts of the country. But as previously mentioned, transit is a lifeblood of this city. If we can't get to work, shop, theaters, restaurants, that's less tax money earned, in which means less money going to places like Arkansas and other, state that, other states that New York State helps out with our tax revenue. That mainly comes from the city. A transit-rich city means a more livable, happier, less stressful city. So leadership needs to focus on priorities, Money needs to be allocated for the right things. Congestion pricing needs to be implemented. The infrastructure bill needs to be passed, not just for New York City transit, but for the country, so the country can move forward. Remember, transit is life. I encourage any politician to talk to me, and anyone else for that matter. I may not agree with you politically, but we can still talk transit and the MTA. Color, creed, sexual orientation, and political affiliation doesn't matter. We're all trying to get to work. Also, vote. Get out and vote. If you have not registered, register to vote. We are currently in an election season here in New York City. Mayor, city council, borough presidents, and so many more positions are currently running for election. Plus, the MTA is in fact a political organization run by the governor, with some board members selected by the governor, and some members selected by the mayor, which the governor has to approve. You can pick up registration forms at any municipal office. You can call 1-866-VOTE-NYC and they will send you a registration form. 
You can register online. Go to the Board of City Elections in New York City and you can register there. As Bob Schieffer's mother used to say, go out and vote. It makes you feel big and strong. For those youngins who don't know who Bob Schieffer is, get your Google on and Google him. I used to watch him every Sunday morning on my Sunday morning nerd show, Face the Nation. Anyway, regardless of your political affiliation, go out and vote. Let your voice be heard. That's it, everyone. Thank you for listening, and I hope that Jose Martinez and I gave you something to think about and chew on. Remember, we're all in these tin cans together, and in order for this to work, we all have to participate, or just be supportive and be in my amen corner. Here are some spots where you can reach out to Jose Martinez and myself. And as the Four Tops one said, reach out and I'll be there. And don't forget to mask up and get vaccinated. Thank you to Jose Martinez for speaking to me. Find Jose at on his website at the city, thecity.nyc slash Jose hyphen Martinez on Twitter, jmartinezNYC, and find the city on Twitter at thecitynyc. Find me, email podcastsarah at gmail.com. And Sarah is with an H. This podcast is hosted on anchor.com. Twitter, at exenezoom. That's E-X-E-N-E-Z-O-O-M. Instagram, lights at the end of the tunnel. Facebook, lights at the end of the tunnel. SoundCloud, lights at the end of the tunnel. Spotify, lights at the end of the tunnel. Google Podcasts, lights at the end of the tunnel. Although this app is only available for Android users. Break Our Social Podcasts, lights at the end of the tunnel. Radiopublic.com, lights at the end of the tunnel. Pocketcast, lights at the end of the tunnel. Overcast, lights at the end of the tunnel. Thanks to Ox on the Roof for the intro music. Follow them on Twitter at Ox Roof Music. Also SoundCloud, Ox on the Roof. And Instagram, Ox on the Roof. So reach out and share. The only way for this to be successful is to work together. We need to shine a light so bright they can't ignore us. Shine brightly, everybody.